That is the passage which the Lord wants us to look at this morning. And in it we see the marks of a true Christian and the marks of a true Christian community. In the letter to the Galatians, we've had some really technical, stretching theology, haven't we? And now we've got some really technical, stretching discipleship. And the two come together with no tension or difficulty at all. It's as we understand the gospel that we have understanding and motivation to live out the gospel. And to live out the gospel, as David was emphasizing last week, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that everybody here who's a true Christian believer is living a supernatural life. Now our neighbors might miss that. Our colleagues might query that. We might wonder it sometimes, but actually it's just objectively true. If you're a Christian, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and his power is powerfully keeping you with the Lord Jesus and strengthening you to live for the Lord Jesus in these particular ways, as Paul will show us. I wonder if you've noticed, if you've, if you've been with us these weeks on Sunday mornings, how through chapters 1 and 2, we heard nothing at all about the Holy Spirit. Nothing at all. Lots about law and the failure of law-keeping and the folly and trusting in our efforts and then much about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he saves us because we've all hopelessly messed up and broken all of the Ten Commandments. We stand under God's judgment, but then Christ came and he kept the law and he kept the law in our place for us and he died under the penalty of our failure to keep the law. And now risen from the dead, he is our saviour and Lord and he's our good shepherd. And in chapters 3 to 6, I checked this morning, there are 18 references to the Holy Spirit. As Paul is emphasizing what this Holy Spirit Christian discipleship looks like. How the Spirit brings us to Jesus Christ and life in him. How he transforms us, even works miracles in us. How he works to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And how through his strength alone we begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. As was touched on last week. And then we have these wonderful phrases we saw last week in chapter 5. How we are to live by the Spirit, 5.16. To be led by the Spirit, 5.18. To keep in step with the Spirit, 5.25. And in our section here, how we are to sow to the Spirit, 6 verse 8. And they all sound exciting, but puzzling. And we might, if we're new to the Bible and the Christian life, think that there's some kind of higher plane living which only the spiritual elite get to live. It's up here somewhere. It's removed from the hassles and the headaches of the world and this life. Not a bit of it. Paul is sketching out here as he teaches us wholehearted discipleship what it means to get down into the weeds and the knotty problems and the tears and the tensions and the difficulties of our lives and lives in the Christian community, and as we get involved in them, 
and go the way of the cross, the way of emptying ourselves that others might be filled with Jesus, that's life in the spirit. That is a supernatural, spirit-driven life. God has saved us to live and given us his spirit to make us able to live. And these are the verses in front of us. Spirit living equals wholehearted, Jesus-honoring discipleship. Now, I wrestled and puzzled and tried out different ways in my study last week as to how to preach this to you. Is it a game of two halves? Is it lots of commandments? Do I just pick out one which I think is a central verse and just preach that? Well, here we go. In 25 minutes, I'm going to give you six things which all Christians must do. Six facets which Paul lays down here which are marks of keeping in step by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit, being led to the Spirit, however you want to call it, but which together make up wholehearted, Spirit-led discipleship. We're ready to go. Number one, verse one. We give ourselves to fellow Christians who are struggling with sin. Verse 1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should, should retreat from him silently. Have a look at your text. Is that what the Apostle Paul says? Because we do, don't we? Somebody's life gets messy and ugly and weird, and we wordlessly, silently step out of the picture because we're uncomfortable and we're stressed and we're cross. We're embarrassed, and so we're over here. Paul says, advance. Don't be a fair-weather friend. What's a fair-weather friend? Our friends, and perhaps who are new to the UK, you've not heard that phrase before. A fair-weather friend is somebody who's your friend when it's nice. When they're enjoying you. And friendships are about enjoying one another. But what about when you're not enjoying a friendship? When your friend gets caught in a sin. And this word caught means really trapped in a sin. You cannot be a fair-weather friend. You discover if at that point you are a fair-weather friend. And as Christians, we repent of that. We think, actually, God has called me here. Not to have an ice cream and a nice time with this person. But actually to ask the harder questions. To be loyal, to give of ourselves, to go down with them into their struggle. Oh, you heard the command as Katie read it to us, watch yourself. Because even the ugliest sins sometimes have a fascinating pull on us. We can be very self-aware as we're seeking to help a friend, but the help is not an option. We are to go and speak and spend time and reason with, and urge, and help them in that problem. Paul says, you who are spiritual, that's not, again, that's not some elite crack squad. That's you who have the spirit, and are walking with the spirit. That's an obedient Christian, is the best qualified. He doesn't say a leader. He's saying the obedient Christian is the best qualified person to help a fellow struggling Christian. 
and you restore him gently. You don't humiliate. You don't throw out ultimatums. You're not loud and noisy and menacing. You are like Jesus, gentle and patient and painstaking and kind. So that's our first challenge, Hope Church. How are we doing? My hunch, now, here we go. I think we're a very ungossipy church. And I love that. And I thank you for that. So little about how people in this church are doing gets back to my ears unless I ask those individuals. And that's brilliant. That's how it should be. That's a mark of a a fellowship where we're honouring one another. We're guarding and protecting one another's privacy. Where conversations don't get leaked out and ooze across the floor of the church. That's not godly, is it? So I don't know how we're doing, but I suspect... It may be glory to God if all the secrets were out. We are moving into one another's lives with counsel and encouragement and help. That may be challenge. Let's keep going. But again, this is not a word to the leaders. It's a word to everybody. We are to give ourselves to strugglers. Now, if we don't get the outcomes that honor God in their being repentance, well, that's the Lord's to work. Our responsibility is to speak words of warning or challenge which show the love of Christ. And we leave it with him for the outcome. And then verse 2, secondly, we carry each other's burdens. Yes, we do. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill not your conscience, You'll fulfill the law of Christ, although conscience does have a role. You'll fulfill the law of Christ as you carry each other's burdens. Now, I thought, do I lift up verse 2 and kind of make that the whole sermon? Because I think that's the key verse. And our our antennae should go up as we realize this is very serious. We fulfill the law of Christ? Maybe we're saying, well, what is the law of Christ? What did Jesus say when he was asked about the Old Testament law? He said... Well, it's love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Unless we want to ring fence, actually my neighbor is just the people I like or in my home or friendship group. Jesus gives us the power of the Good Samaritan. And one of the great answers of the Good Samaritan is, one of the great unlockings of it is your neighbor's anybody. Well, there's immediate need that presses suddenly and with demands into your life. That's your neighbor. And the way Jesus lived and died was he loved the Lord his God and he loved his fellow human being. Radically, totally, with his last breath and his last blood. And he says to us, he says to us, I've carried your burden, Christian. I've carried the burden of your sin and your shame. I carried it all the way to the cross. And I gave up my life for you. And the same Savior says, well, does Jesus quote the Bible to us? In a sense, he does. Because he brings the word of God to us in the power of the Spirit, his Spirit. So Jesus might quote to us Psalm 68, verse 19. Write it down and reflect on it. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, 
who daily bears our burdens. And Hope Church says, glory, hallelujah, it's true. He daily bears our burdens. Our Savior has not left us until heaven. Our Savior is walking with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Bearing our burdens of stress, concern, grief, anxiety, ill health. Whatever the burdens, there is where the Savior is walking and carrying them with us. Amazing. What an incentive for worship. What a builder of faith. What an incentive for obedience. Carry each other's burdens. Why? Because Jesus commands me. And I fulfill his law of love as I carry the burdens of people in my life. My friends, those I find less friendly. Family complete strangers. Where there's need, that's where I serve, the Christian says. Why? Because it's obvious. (laughs) Jesus did that for me at the cross. He does that for me every day. And he's exalted me to this privileged status of brother, sister, servant. So I imitate him in the power of his spirit. I'll leave that with you. You knew when you walked into the church building, you've got to do this. God's written it on our hearts. And we've read it dozens of times in his words. Now, again, I think Hope Church, in many ways, does a fabulous job about this. There is an impulse in this church, I detect, to care and to serve and to share burdens. We can always do it better, with more compassion, more eagerness, more thoughtfulness and effectiveness. But we've got to do it. But in the third command, maybe we understand our hearts a little more about why it's a struggle, why it's hard. So number three, We fight pride in ourselves, because that's why we often don't serve, isn't it? We fight pride in ourselves so that we can serve others. That's verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, we think we are something, don't we? That's why we're so reluctant to go to that difficult person. We're so consumed with our agenda and our diary and our demands that we are outraged, though we sometimes hide it. When suddenly there's a need pressing into our lives from outside. And we secretly think, I'm too busy. I'm too important to serve that person. But when the Holy Spirit works in us, he works on our pride. He whispers, well, you're nothing special in yourself, are you? When was it that you and I agreed that you don't have to serve? Others can, you don't. I don't think the Spirit deals with us like that, does he? He's been poured out from heaven to make humble Christians whose instinct is, is there a need? That's where I've got to go, if I can, to serve. 
Then it says, we need to test ourselves because, sorry, just camping in verse 3 for a little bit longer. If we think we're above serving other people, we deceive ourselves. We think we're above Jesus. He served everybody. But somehow, because we're better than him, we don't have to. Now, none of us would say we're better than Jesus. So we do follow him. Otherwise, we're self-deceived. So verse 4, self-reflection. Test your actions. We've got to have that bravery and integrity. Look at our diaries. Look at where our money goes, our time goes, our efforts go. And really say, before the Lord, am I investing them to the joy and welfare of other people? Because if I'm not, I might be self-deceived. Then, if we test ourselves, we can say, well, I've got a long way to go, but basically I am trying to help others. Our translation is too strong there when it says he can take pride in himself. Because we hear pride and we go, oh, that's a bad word. That's a bad word in the Bible. But it's it, it's not a bad word, the word Paul selects. It's really like, now he can just be assured. He can be comfortable that he doesn't need to compare himself to others. But before the Lord, he is trying in the strength the Lord supplies. He's really trying to serve others. That's what Paul's envisaging. So test your self-hope, church. Where's the basic orientation of your life? Is it all the energy is going inwards? Or are you pushing back against that impulse and you're trying to take it out to serve others? And then verse 5, which if you're alert, this one looks like a complete flat contradiction of verse 2. Verse 5 says, each carries his own load. Verse 2 says, carry other people's loads. What's going on? That's not a contradiction, not if you think about it. Verse 5, he's saying there's no grounds for a spiritual immaturity which is failing to take responsibility for our lives. We're not going to carry our loads. But good old people at church, they will come running at the click of our fingers. That's what that verse means. Carry your load. Take responsibility. Don't justify your laziness. Your squandering of time or money, or refusal to use the gifts and opportunities God in his goodness has given you. Be mature. Don't say it's somebody else's fault. It's my life circumstances. Carry your load in the strength of Christ. So that is a call for the rest of the body of Christ, isn't it? We've always got to be discerning. Where is there a need? And where a need is expressed, we've got to know, is that a real need? I find this in pastoral ministry a lot. For every one thing I do, pretty like everybody else, I and we could do four other things, and they'd be equally good. So if I suddenly get a WhatsApp, text, call, email, whatever, I've got to think, well, is there a need there? I'll often happily just trash the diarying and, and go, go running, but I need to be discerning if the running is the right thing, and so do you. Sometimes we're most mature and least popular and we're finding ways of saying, that is your load. Now I'm here if I can help, but I feel that's your load. And we help people to be mature in their lives. That takes a lot of working through. It doesn't get us off the hook of serving, but it is that call to thinking where service should be offered, or if in seasons, it needs to be withheld. 
so the other Christian brother or sister grows in their maturity. So, that point is about pride. Briefly, verse 6, and this is the fourth point, we share generously with our teachers. Anyone who receives instruction in the world must share all good things with his instructor. Well, there's no riddle there. We know what it means. It means pay your pastors. That's what it means. So I can kind of leave it with you and move on. Except, there's the word generously. Must share, or rather, this is my gloss on it, must share all good things with his instructor. If you've been blessed by the word, if you're confident that your Bible teacher is working hard to share good things with you, then complete the circle. Share your good things with him. Now, of course, that's going to be hospitality, appreciation, thankfulness, encouragement. But Paul is thinking here about financial material support, which is always a fraught topic in churches, particularly in white British majority churches. Because we don't like talking about money by and large, do we? But someone's got to. And we've got to make responsibility that the people who labour in the word are receiving our good things. I jumped on the Church of England's website last week, not because I'm thinking about a denominational uh, change of ship. That will never happen. But I read their guidance on clergy salary. Clergy means they're pastors. Uh, and I'm going to quote you a couple of sentences. This word stipend, which just means wage. So the majority of clergy, I'm quoting here, the majority of clergy receive a stipend which is funded by the giving of congregations. It's paid in order to enable the clergy person, the pastor, to exercise their ministry without the need to take another job in order to earn their living. And it's intended to provide adequately for a clergy person to live during their working years and into retirement. Now that's come white hot from HR or something like that. It's not dripping with a tone of generosity, is it? The key phrases to exercise them without the need to take another job. If I've been in, a, in an interview, they say, we'll pay you such and such so you don't need to take another job. Huh? Wow, alarm bells. You didn't take that job, did you? Or what about, we'll pay you adequately so you can see out your years and retire and be okay. We don't go chasing those jobs, do we? Now, of course, they don't want to suggest the clergyman or woman is going to be on a gravy train. They'll get all sorts of wrong people applying. And that denomination needs to work out generosity, as churches of our network do. But the principle is be generous. Emotionally. And materially, because where leaders know they're loved and honoured, relationships are strong and secure. And as I sign off this point, I speak as a contented, grateful man. Okay? There's no side, there's no code here. I would preach as if I were going out the door tomorrow. But it's something we Christians must be continually attentive to. Because this challenges my giving as well as challenges yours. Number five. Five out of six. Don't worry, we're nearly there. We sow wisely because we will reap plentifully. Do you see that in verses seven to nine? Don't be deceived. 
Now, God knows the details of our lives and the secrets of our hearts and our impulses and our habits. He can't be mocked. We reap what we sow. So we are all sowers. Everybody you've ever set eyes on in life is sowing. Meaning that they are putting their energies, their gifts, their time, their talents, their passions, their values. They're putting them somewhere. Or most likely in a variety of places. Often, just like the sower knowing, they're not going to get immediate yields. But they feel their ambitions and their joys and their values are, are, are sufficiently important to them that that's where they're going. And they're looking for a harvest to reap. Oh, you will reap, says Paul, very, very plentifully. Verse 8, you reap to please your sinful nature. There's a harvest of destruction. You reap, beg your pardon, you sow to please the Holy Spirit and from the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Very, very stark. Outside Christ and the priorities which honour him through faith is death. But in Christ and a life invested, showing true faith, which is what all of Galatians is about, there's life and there's heaven. Let me read you these words. You've all heard them. Sow a thought, reap an action. Reap a habit, beg your pardon, got them wrong already. I'll start again. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. That's a 19th century American writer called uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He clearly got that from the Bible. He wasn't an orthodox Christian believer, but he was brought up with the Bible, and this is where it comes from. Every day we're sowing. Are we sowing to ourselves to get what we can out of life, and that alone? The occasional bit of charity to appease our consciences? Or are we sowing to the Spirit and to the glory of Jesus Christ Giving, giving, giving. Because we know a man who gave everything. Think about how Jesus sowed. He sowed his life into honouring God by serving people. The ungrateful, the intransigent, the hostile. He sowed. And he so committed himself to sowing that he told his disciples about it, his last life on earth, his last night on earth, John 12, verse 24. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, I say if it's sown into the ground, it produces many seeds. And hours later, Jesus would sow his life into death and eternity so that the many seeds of this local church would be shooting up with forgiveness and life and fruitfulness and love. It's true. 
And Jesus says to us, anyone who loves their life will lose it. We're sowing to destruction. But if we hate our life in this world, we'll keep it for eternal life. There's the harvest. And it's heaven. And fast forward almost 2,000 years and we think of the famous declaration of the American missionary who was murdered in 1956 by the very people that he went to Ecuador to reach, a man called Jim Elliot. And he said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing in this life that we can keep forever. Nothing. Give it up. Give it away. Everything for the Lord Jesus, who sowed to the Spirit, and we follow him. It's going to be hard, verse 9. We're going to get weary and maybe discouraged, but we look to the Lord Jesus and we press on. And finally, verse 10. We give ourselves wholeheartedly, as we have opportunity, to others. We do good, verse 10, to all people. So we give our money this weekend to Turkey and Syria and where there was earthquake in Iran. We give it to the agencies we think are best. They don't have to be Christian. It's all people. We serve all people in our street, at work. Everybody has infinite honor and value because they're created in the image of God and need the forgiveness of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. But particularly, not exclusively, I've just ruled that out, particularly we're looking out for brothers and sisters in the family of faith, whether we know them, whether we will never know them. We give to those organizations and individuals in Turkey, in Syria, who are directing our giving with Christ's love and bringing practical service and the word of the gospel to the most destitute and needy. And we do that wholeheartedly. You're not carrying anybody's burden unless you feel the weight of it. And then you're carrying it. We don't give a few pounds. We give something that feels uncomfortable as it leaves our bank balance. And only as we begin to give sacrificially do we know the joy of the Lord and the vibrant reality of living wholeheartedly for our Saviour. Lord Jesus Christ, we bow in worship before you, our great God and Saviour. We embrace again your gospel message, all of our law-breaking, and all of your excellent love and law-keeping, and we trust in you. And we pray that where we're frightened, where we're proud, where we're weary, you will capture again our hearts with your love and send us on in wholehearted discipleship where we're making much of you, 
relying upon you and bringing your love and your truth to a dying world. We ask, Lord Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen.